What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. One of the engines behind Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights camps. He is also, I have to say, one of the sharpest knives in the box. His name is Amir Hassan Loggins. What is your read on what has happened this offseason with Colin Kaepernick in the National Football League? I had to work out with his ass a couple of times, so I know he's getting up at 5 in the morning every day working out. As he's on vacation in Africa, he's finding a way to work out. He's with the people. He's happy, but at the same time, he's hungry. You know, he wants to work, and he shouldn't have to campaign to let people know that he wants to work because he didn't express a desire to not work. When you strip it down to the bare, brute facts, he would be campaigning for his right to employment. And I have never seen anybody campaign for their right to employment in NFL in that nature. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are speaking to the lead researcher and lecturer for Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights Camps. His name is Amir Hassan Loggins. We also have choice words about the OJ verdict, just stand up, just sit your ass down, Kaepernick watch, and a whole lot more. But first, let's go to this gentleman. He is a graduate of UC Berkeley working towards his doctorate in African Diaspora Studies. His research explores, get this, and I will ask him about OJ, reality television as a social phenomena and how it affects the perception of blackness. He also is, as I said, one of the engines behind Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights camps. He is also, I have to say, one of the sharpest knives in the box. His name is Amir Hassan Loggins. I got to ask you about some breaking news stories about Colin Kaepernick. I mean, Dan Orlovsky, uh, someone who a lot of people thought hadn't been in the NFL for a decade, was just signed as a backup quarterback. What is your read on what has happened this offseason with Colin Kaepernick in the National Football League? I mean, I guess a part of my read on what's happened Colin during the offseason is it's an extension of what was happening during the actual regular season. And one of the most important things to look at is like it's it's interesting is the deflection that's going on because what I've seen is like I, and literally I've been compiling like almost a top ten list of reasons other than Colin Kaepernick's personal beliefs which would lead to some you know potential you know lawsuits actually for the NFL discriminating against against his personal beliefs and his um his convictions but I've seen things about him being a vegan socks flags, um, his weight, his dedication to the NFL. He's not speaking out in promotion of himself wanting to play a sport that clearly he wants to play because he hasn't announced a retirement like most people do when they want to exit said field of the NFL. So what I'm seeing more than anything is the NFL narrative versus the NFL reality. And the reality of it is, is that in many ways, by definition, Colin Kaepernick is being blacklisted um, or blackballed for his beliefs because analytically he actually measures up 
quite favorably, not just a backup quarterback, but to some of the top tier, not top tier, but some of the, you know, some of the top rated quarterbacks in the NFL that start in conjunction with the fact that a lot of the receivers that he had were actually seen as not no disrespect to them, but as third tier receivers. Mm -hmm. So it clearly can't be about his football. It can't be about his, you know, as Joe Montana recently said, him being a distraction when he actually won the award for being a team leader on his team and then said team won an award for being humanitarian after they got rid of the one person that led to them being in a space of being seen as humanitarian in the first place. So clearly it's about his politics. And at some point I would hope that they would give the – the American people enough credit to be intelligent enough to see through that. Right. But as you said, it opens them up to all sorts of legal issues if they actually dare say the truth that's right in front of all our faces. How do you respond to the idea that I'm sure you've heard some people put forward that if Colin would only do an interview, you know, would sit down with some respected member of the sports media and actually express his desire to play? that that would somehow get him a job? I mean, my response to that would be no one else in the history of my, you know, my life as a fan of the NFL or sports in general has had to go out and campaign for their right to employment. Because when you strip it down to the bare brute facts, he would be campaigning for his right to employment. And I have never seen anybody campaign for their right to employment in NFL and that nature. And also by doing so, it would be saying, one, in some ways implicating that he is admitting some kind of wrong, right? To be able to say, look, I really want to play. I'm changing. He should not have to be seen in a space of change when what should be changing is the systemic oppression that had led to him having an awakening to protest those things in the first place. If anything, I would think the NFL, who traditionally and historically has had a problem with having its athletes seem as if they are um, uncontrollable in some ways and unsafe within you know mainstream society, I would think that it would be to the NFL's benefit to have someone who is philanthropic, who works with children, who wins awards for being a team leader and who was voted one of Time Magazine's, you know, most important 100 people to be a part of the NFL as opposed to being ostracized. Now, we're going to talk about this in great detail later in this podcast, but of course, I have to ask you about your response to the Michael Vick statement that if Colin cut his hair, his hair that, as you and I have both heard him refer to it as, his African hair, like if he cuts that hair, Colin Kaepernick would have a job. I mean, we, 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 you don't have to say how patently ridiculous that, that is, but I would like to ask you what your response was when you heard it. My first response was, one, I took in consideration the platform for which he was on. I mean, he was sitting maybe five feet away from Jason Whitlock, you know, and um, what usually comes out of Fox Sports 1's platform, particularly on Colin Cowherd's show, which for some reason Jason Whitlock claims ownership of, which gets into a whole other space of Stockholm Syndrome. It's not your show. <laughs> but um, 
when I first heard it, it, it reeked of a politics of respectability that has been pervasive within the black community for quite a long time. But the first thing I really thought of when Brother Malcolm was assassinated, he didn't have an afro and he didn't have a beard like that. You know, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, he had a suit on and a tie. And so what tends to come about is like your these excuses of black respectability and civility through hair when uh, when in most cases most people don't even understand the rich tradition and history of black people and their hair and also this idea of being civil via hairstyle is preposterous in the first place because it's usually adhering to some tired trope of eurocentric standards of beauty respectability and and normalcy Mm. Now, what is Colin's uh, state of mind these days as he's looking at all this going on, as he's seeing these lesser quarterbacks get signed, as he's seeing uh, people you know, sound off about him as if they know who he is and what he's thinking? I mean, speaking personally, you know, that, that would rankle the hell out of me. I'd be doing a lot of mindful meditation just to get through the day. Uh, what's your take on how he's doing? Man, I talked to Colin yesterday, and we speak frequently. And he has actually inspired me, you know, in a, in a weird way to be just a more even killed person. Like, I can understand why he um, can be seen and is a leader of amongst men in the NFL ranks as well as outside now um, because he seems to be unflappable. Like, he has a great disposition. He's working out – like, I've – when we were in Africa, and I, and I know we may mm-hmm. give you this, but I mean, the man, mm-hmm. were, I, I had to work out with his ass a couple of times. So I know he's getting up at five in the morning every day working out, working out, getting his trainer to send him workouts. As he's on vacation in Africa, he's finding a way to work out. He's with the people. He's happy. But at the same time, he's hungry. You know, he wants to work. And he shouldn't have to campaign to let people know that he wants to work because he did not. He didn't express a desire to not work. So, but in, in all truth, man, he's, he's in great spirits. He's still, you know, working out. He's still training every day and still learning every day and still extending himself to the people, whether it's domestically or internationally now. That, that, that's a terrific uh, detail, like the idea of still working out on that trip uh, to the African continent. And that gets to my next question to you because, I mean – like a lot of people, I think, who listen to this show, I mean, who, and I think a lot of people listen to this show, like July 4th comes around and they, you know, they're not looking to blow up a small part of this country. They're looking to just get through the day. Right. And to have Colin on July 4th say, um, how could I celebrate independence in a country that denied my ancestors their independence to find my truth? I had to go to Africa. I mean, that was so powerful and that speaks to the motivation behind the trip but i'm hoping you could perhaps give a little more depth about those motivations and then also the substance of what you guys did well a part of the motivations behind the trip as you stated was looking into like when you have an awakening and you start to want to have answers and you become inquisitive at a level that you know um can sometimes be seen to others as obsessive we joked about it on the trip, and um, I told him, I said, man, usually within mainstream media in America, anytime a black celebrity goes to Africa to find themselves, 
they are sometimes or somehow demonized as being crazy or losing their mind. Like, oh, man, he went to Africa. Dave Chappelle went to Africa. He went crazy. You know, it's like this thing is if, if a black person decides to vacation or visit Africa, as, you know, to dig deeper into their own history, it's seen as something that's as if it's, it's, in, it's a, in a space of lunacy. Whereas if he would have t- taken a trip to Spain or something like that, everybody you know would have understood because Spain is beautiful. He would have went to Italy. Italy is beautiful. Mm. France is beautiful. He would have went to Hanover, Germany. They would have gone, oh, he's going to, you know, it would have been some way to find the beauty in it. But when you go to Africa, they're immediately like, why? Why did you do that? As if to say, as if Africa is unvisitable. And it's, it still reeks of these ideas of Africa as a dark continent, this uncivilized space, which also ties into this idea of him and his hair. Like, and I'll go back to the African mm-hmm. point, but Nivea not too long ago had a campaign that said basically um, re-civilize yourself. And within that campaign, they had a black man with a severed black head with an afro and a goatee, and he was tossing it over, like it looked like he was tossing it into the ocean, and it said to re-civilize yourself. And those ideas in conjunction with the ideas of Africa as being backwards, as Africa as being a space worthy of carving and dissecting and, and divvying out amongst Europe, play into the idea of when you go to Africa, it, it's, it seems as if you're making a mistake as a black person. But the trip to Africa, I mean, it was, it was a beautiful trip. It was like one of the things Colin wanted to do, he did his ancestry. He's been, I mean, he's been heavy on his ancestry. And he's been trying to figure out who he is. Mm-hmm. And he was like, look, man, I'm going to go back to Ghana because it says that some of my roots are in Ghana. And he didn't just go back and visit. You know, um, we went to the slave castles um, in Elmina and the Cape Coast castles. And we actually went and we sat in the the prison cells. Because literally, you know, some of my research as an af- academic goes into the idea of how black people or African people, before they became slaves, they were incarcerated before anything because they weren't slaves. They had no occupation. They were in, they were incarcerated on false, uh, oftentimes on false, false charges within their own tribal commune. And then they would be taken to <clears throat> prisons, which slave castles, which were converted into prisons, and then put on floating prisons, which were slavers, and then they were sold into slavery, which would, would be an extension of private prisons on the plantation, only to be put back into formal carceral class status via post thirteenth amendment. But Yeah, I, I think I remember you saying in Chicago and it made such an impression on me where you called plantations um open air institutions of mass incarceration. Right. And and and, and we tend to not frame it that way because it becomes a conversation of because and even in, in working through that, a part of the, the idea is complicating the idea of mass incarceration to look at, no, we have always post transatlantic slave trade been in a space of the carceral. We have always been a carceral class of people, which is why we are still the most incarcerated people in the Americas or any place within the African diaspora where slavery is touched. We are still the most incarcerated people anywhere that we have 
touchdown, whether it's in Brazil, whether it's in Haiti, whether it's in Jamaica, in America, in South America, we are still the most incarcerated people in those places. But we went to the castles, um, and you can just feel the history. You can feel, you can feel yourself um, being implanted into a into a psyche that you probably never thought you'd be able to tap into. I mean, it was it was painful, and we were all going through that together, as well as being you know, in Ghana and just walking amongst the people. Um, So it wasn't just this, you know, this trip about, you know, reliving or, you know, um, wounds of slavery. It was also paying homage. It was almost like going to a funeral. Like you went to pay your respect to your ancestors. You know, Mm -hmm. you visit them, you, you you know, you sit in a cell by yourself and you would talk to them. You would go into, you you would go into the space where the women were, you know, being, being tortured because they fought back against being raped. Um, but then after that, you know. Sorry to interrupt you, but I know you also went to an institution of, of triumph as well, the Kwame Nkrumah Center. Absolutely. And can you speak a little bit about that experience and what, what that meant to not just Colin, but, but you as well? We went to the Kwame Nkrumah Center, and one of the things that spoke to, for us as a group or for Colin, I could see, it's one of those things where you're stepping into history while you're learning history simultaneously. And we're sitting there and we're learning about Kwame Nkrumah. We're learning about who, who was actually in conjunction with the people who helped overthrow Kwame Nkrumah. Unfortunately, you know, it was the American government, but um, that were in conjunction with working with the overthrow of Kwame Nkrumah, who was the first, president of Ghana, of independent Ghana. Um, but for me, as a, as a doctoral candidate, it was, I saw his dissertation, you know, and it was, a, it was wow. personal for me to like, man, that's his dissertation sitting in that case. Uh, I respected their wishes. I didn't take a picture of it. But, you know, so for me, it, was, it, it put me in a perspective, in a, in, a, in, a, in a light where I was like, okay, the work that I'm doing is also academically in line with the work that he's done. Like, he, too, felt my struggle as a, you know, a doctoral candidate trying to finish a dissertation. And Mm -hmm. that trip, though, to see Kwame Nkrumah's uh, memorial was on the heels of us visiting um, the villages. You know, it was on the heels of us making connections for Colin's other thing, which is being philanthropic with his money, you know, with his money and his time. Like we visited um, a school that we're, that he's thinking about, you know, working with, but we went and um, we talked to the kids and we talked to the teachers. We asked them what they need. Man, I'm trying so hard not to interrupt you because with every sentence, it's like I got a follow-up question. But this one I got to ask because American football is such a provincial sport. It's a sport of the United States. It's not – necessarily celebrated throughout the world, but Colin Kaepernick's gesture was international. Did people know who he was? Yeah, we went to Morocco, we went to Ghana, and we were in Egypt. And everywhere we went, somebody knew who he was. And the beautiful part about it was that they didn't mention football. Mm. They talked about they appreciated what he was doing, we read about you, about your stance. It was more so centered around that. You know, people, you know, obviously, I mean, he's a, he's a damn six foot six, 240 pound dude. Like, 
I mean, mm-hmm. he's a big dude. So regardless, and I'm six three, two oh five. So wherever we walked around, it was funny. They even if they didn't know who he was, they just knew we were big people. <laughs> and and um, so they knew he did something possibly. Um, but the people that did recognize him, they understood he was a football player. But like you said, being that football is not, you know, it's a uniquely American, North American sport. They understood that he is a football player, but they respected him because he was a man amongst the people who cared about them and that he stood up for people who were in struggle. And when people in struggle, it's like we say, well, I grew up there, like real recognize real. Like a person struggling recognize somebody trying to help other people struggling. And that's kind of the sentiment that uh, came off amongst the people that recognized him. Wow. Now, I mean, this is a beautiful story. And, of course, uh, Colin, based on what I saw on social media, also went through uh, – got to Egypt. Yes. And, and, and met up with uh, Marquise Goodwin there, NFL player. Is, is that correct? Yeah. And the Egyptian leg of that trip, you know, Egypt is a country that's currently – you know, ruled by a, a strong man, U.S. allied general, arresting dissidents and all the rest of it. Uh, but and I imagine that Kaepernick there might have felt like a tremendous lifeline and and joy to people. I, but but obviously you could tell me better than I could guess. What what was that like? You know what? It's interesting that how the trip kind of played out, and a part of the Egypt portion of the trip was there was a return home for his partner, um, Nessa, because Nessa's Egyptian. Mm. And her family roots are in Egypt, you know. Um, and so a part of it, that trip was where you saw a different side of, you know, not just Colin, but the trip in general because it became more, more familial. And um, it became for lack of a better term, more excavative or um, in the sense of you're, you're visiting temples, you're visiting pyramids, and you're walking through this extensive history as well as walking through the streets of Cairo or Aswan or you're visiting all of these spaces that have, you know, a legacy that trumps a time space that we live in in the United States. America can't understand a 3,000-year-old relic. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just not it, – it's, it's unfathomable in America because America hasn't been around that long. So to walk amongst that length of history and know that somehow possibly ancestrally you're connected to it was just – it was awe-inspiring. And it was um, – I mean, it was the most for, – for me, it was a part of – and it, I think I speak for Colin in that regard as well. It was one of the parts of the trip where we most probably felt like kids, you know, because we were so just like, oh, my God, those are the pyramids. You know, we, we, we mm. both spent like 20 minutes trying to copy a picture Malcolm X took amongst two pyramids, two of the great pyramids. And mm. and you mentioned Malcolm X, and we revere those images now, and and especially those images in Spike Lee's movie that he filmed of Denzel as Malcolm right. uh, in Egypt. Yet, to recall something you said earlier in the interview, he was somebody also who people were talking about as if he was crazy because he did his Hajj and he wore uh, Muslim garb. And, and that, that was a narrative around Malcolm too, which I think has been sort of erased from the history books that he received that same criticism, that Chappelle-esque criticism. Right. And, and it's, it is, it is, it becomes 
something where you are, I mean, I teach this in my class through like Irving Dawson's work on stigma theory, but you become highly stigmatizable based on your tribal affiliation. And once you start affiliating yourself with Africanness instead of an assimilated African-Americanness, people tend to think as almost as if you're moving backwards or you don't, you don't appreciate what you receive in America. And one of the things I can say on all the trips is one of the things I did appreciate and we all appreciated was no matter where we went, not only was our money welcome, but we were welcomed into every store. We were welcomed into every restaurant. We were welcomed in and not feeling as if we were being surveyed or constantly watched in a way that makes you uncomfortable and you know the uncomfortability is stems from the fact of that you are highly melanated. So, I mean, but overall though, like even in Egypt, I mean, Egypt was, it was a beautiful trip, but it definitely was one of the one parts of the trip where everybody just kind of let their hair down and enjoyed the space. As we wrap up this interview, and I really do appreciate your time, what next for Colin Kaepernick? What do you think is going to be the next stage for him going forward? What can we expect to see? I mean, it's so much in term, between the philanthropy and the activism and the rest of it. It's like I now do a segment on my podcast called Kaepernick Watch sure. just because there's no way else we could document it if I wasn't actually saying it and reporting it to my listeners. What, what do you think is uh, coming up next for this guy? Well, I think that one, I mean, Colin is an astute learner, and I think that no matter what, whether the NFL actually lives up to what it says it does, which is employ the best athletes in the world in said sport and give him a job, even job or no job, he's still going to be a seeker of knowledge. Um, he's still going to help people. Um, he's still going to try to give his time to the kids and um, – He's still going to work on his craft and and be ready and prepared when somebody actually does the math and think about how he is one of the only quarterbacks in recent time that has been to the Super Bowl and NFC Championship back-to-back in this recent moment outside of the quarterbacks that are considered top-tier quarterbacks, you know, or elite quarterbacks. Mm. So if you actually start to do the, the, the math and the analytics and you start to actually look at the situation like and factor in that he was injured, like nobody actually includes that into the narrative surrounding his quote-unquote decline in proficiency and blah, 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 blah. Well, he did come off of, like, I think having three major surgeries. So, of course, that increases the decline in muscle mass and blah, blah, blah. But as, you know, the, the year progressed, he got better. So hopefully – the NFL will find a way to have some courage, one owner at least amongst the many, find the courage to hire him and employ him so he can continue having the right to work in America, land of the free, right? He should be free to work. Um, but either way, he's going to keep working out from what I see, you know, from being around him personally and talking to him. He's going to keep working out. He's going to keep learning, and he's going to keep trying to help people who need help. And will the Know Your Rights camps continue, and could you please, please do one in Washington, D.C.? So two-part question. Two-part question. Well, yes, Know Your Rights camps will continue. I think that is one of the things that Colin, you know, without any funding, without any 
fanfare, you know, it was something that he genuinely did from the heart and that we all are a part of and making sure that, you know, we all do it for free. You know, nobody, Colin is sacrificing his money. We're all sacrificing our time. This is a, this is the quintessential nonprofit. It is because it, it, you know, because you've done this kind of work yourself. There's no, there's no capitalism in, in, in helping kids who need help. You usually are bleeding money. You know, you usually renting spaces, buying food, providing resources, and what you get in return is love, which is worth more than anything. But this is something that he's doing as a labor of love, with or without the NFL. So I think that there will definitely be more um, Know Your Rights camps because, I mean, it's, it's amazing how many people, and it's sad at the same time. It's a beautiful thing, and it's a sad thing. How many people from all over the country hit us up and like, man, could you please do one here? Could you do, and you please do one in our city because we need it. We need it. We need it. And at some point, we, you start to realize that so many people need so much help in this country that one Colin Kaepernick cannot do it alone, but he's trying his best to hit every spot that he can possibly. Now, D.C., hey, you D.C. definitely needs some attention. Milwaukee definitely needs attention. New Orleans needs attention. Any of the satellite spaces where the people post-Hurricane Katrina live that have been jettisoned from their actual yeah. natural space need attention. Like, there's so many spaces that need attention, but I definitely think that D.C. would be one of the spaces that uh, we would potentially hit based on its demographics. And I got to ask you this, too. I mean, and I so appreciate the time. Uh, I don't know if you've read the work of uh, Donna Murch, professor out of Rutgers, who's written about the Panthers extensively, several books. If you haven't read Donna Murch, highly recommend it. Uh, she made this great point about the breakfast programs of the Panthers, and she said that um, – Part of her analysis is that you know they're partly they partly were a response not just as revolutionary survival programs but also a response to the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson, where activists felt like there was federal money that they could loosen, mm-hmm. and the Panthers talked about well we can actually shame these local governments into actually providing resources for these young people, and that that actually worked. Right, actually, like did. the Panther programs were replicated. It actually worked. It was, it was, it, so it was like a political protest just to do these programs because there was a recognition that there was fat on the system. Now, you know, we live in this very neoliberal age, and I'm sure you talk to young activists, and you know, they largely view the state in terms as, for understandable reasons, as an instrument that can take their life or surveil on them, not as an institution that they can wrest funds from for their community. Right. And that's it, a long way to ask you about the Know Your Rights camps. And is, is it an end unto itself, as an important as an end as it is, or do you see it as something like with the Panthers that could actually be something transitional that could force government to act to actually supply resources for these young people? Well, I, Long ass question. Long ass question, but I gotta remember I'm an academic. I'm used to long questions that coming from the crowd. Oh. That <laughs> you know how that is. But more importantly, one of the things that the Know Your Rights camp is trying to do is provide not just it because, it be, because Colin is one of the things that Colin and the Know Your Rights camp is doing is oftentimes if you've been to one of the camps, it's not just us. It's us inviting other people already doing work in the community to share in his mm-hmm. platform. 
So he becomes almost like a, a conduit. Right. He becomes a conduit for the others, not just to get their stuff on a larger platform, but to also create, you know, a networking space and um, to provide an extra boost when they go back into the community. They'll say, yeah, we worked with this camp. We worked with that camp. We, we're connecting with other camps nationally that are doing similar work. So I think that it becomes two-pronged. What we're, the fact that you have to do the work chains the, the one who is pro- providing the um, the the basically providing the obstructions to freedoms and justices and resources for the camps to be necessary in the first place. And two, what it does is it allows people the right to feel as if they have agency. And it's one of the things we push. We do a 10-point program, which is in you know, honor of the Black Panther Party, but a part of the rights that we're talking about, they're not just like civil rights, they're just human rights. And the right to feel as if you have agency is embedded in some of the rights that we have. The right to feel like you have the power to one-to-one change the lives of people is a part of what we're trying to push on a daily basis. And for them to understand that even though you are up against systemic oppression and institutional pressures to adhere to things that are counterintuitive to your own survival, you still have a right to push forward and to, and to interrogate and agitate those who are trying to keep you in, in these jettison spaces. So I think mm. that for the camp, it's one of those things where it's continuously growing, it's continuously evolving, because a, a part of the camp is always embedded in the spirit of Malcolm X, who one of the most beautiful things about Malcolm was that he was always humble enough to admit he was wrong and to continue to grow and to continue to learn and to continue to grow and develop and develop. He never stopped developing. That's a part of the beauty of his narrative that makes him so believable and, and touchable by everybody is that his iconic status is not that of hierarchically being above everybody, but it's the fact that they know he came from the people and he continued to stay with the people until he was martyred in his last day. Mm. Wow. Amir Loggins, thank you so much for the time you've given us. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you something we ask all our guests, and that is about music. What kind of music are you listening to these days? I mean, I know, you know, as a writer, and you're a writer, it's like music is sometimes an essential in the background when you work just to keep you focused, although sometimes music is also what gets you up in the morning and gets you exercising. Well, small caveat, before I was an academic, I was always an activist. Before I was an academic and a essayist of sorts, I was a hip-hop artist. So I produced and, like... I almost didn't get to my doctoral program because they were like, Amir, are you going to focus on academics or are you going to focus on music? Because at the time, I was, you know, doing summer jams and I was on MTV. Like, I was doing pretty well in music. So music is not just something I listen to. Like, I am really one of those people that embody the idea of, like, I am hip-hop. I teach a course on the sociology of hip-hop right now at, a, at UC Berkeley. Um, so... The music question for me is always real, really personal. But what am I listening to right now? Right now, I'm listening to a blend of like the artist named Donnie. Now, Donnie's music is 
he, he, he created one of the best, what some would call, like trying to fit it into a, a Neo Soul album. And nobody really knows about that album. But the artist's name is Donnie. D-O-N-N-I-E. Which also makes me want to listen to Donnie Hathaway. Then I'm always listening to Nina Simone. I'm always listening to um, Stevie. I'm always listening to Donnie, Roberta Flack. I'm always listening to the old stuff because I'm a producer who sample. I'm a sample producer. I love samples. So I'm always, even when I listen to Jay-Z's 444, I was more excited about the samples than I was Jay-Z in many ways. Mm. Because I was like, yeah, no, I've been there too. You know where it's like, yo, I, I mean, I was there was times where I was listening to that album and I was more impressed with No ID than I was Jay Z. I was listening to No ID. I listen to sometimes as a producer. I'm listening to No ID's album, not Jay Z's album. When I think of the musicians that I revere, who I only learned about initially through samples, from from Roy Ayers to right. Joe Sample to the Brothers Johnson. I mean, samples have opened my mind up to so much music. Samples, it's the cool thing about samples is, and is that because it does become this conduit for us to know our past, right, and to keep people alive through the things that they bled for to create to be preserved. The cold part about sampling is, is that being that it's controlled by corporations, now the accessibility to samples is controlled by people who could probably give a damn about the music in the first place. They just want royalty. They want points. They want publishing. So sometimes the music dies because people can't afford to get sample clearancing, and those songs die. So people like Jay-Z and Kanye have the wherewithal, the power, and the resources to have samples like Donnie Hathaway, have samples from Nina Simone, have samples from Stevie Wonder. But regular artists who don't have that kind of money and power, they usually don't get the sample and they have to create from out of nowhere. And, and a lot of those musicians die along with the medium. So if you can, check the footnotes out. Listen to some of the sample. When you listen to Jay-Z's album, because that's kind of what's popping right now, as a, whoever's listening to this podcast, actually... Study the footnotes and see where those songs came from and listen to those original songs and you'll double your enjoyment of the project itself. That's a great point. Amir Loggins, man, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, man, thank you for having me on and keep doing the good work. Now, I appreciate the work that you do, all the writing that you do, man, and and your voice is definitely needed and appreciated. I appreciate you, too. Now, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Look, in this era, we need independent media more than ever, and The Nation's been doing it for 150 years. This week, you got to check out the issue. We got articles about labor's resurgence in the UK, an article about Detroit's Muslim community, and an article about Native Americans and education, all by some of the best journalists in the country. Remember, you can get those in the physical magazine. Those things do still exist. Or you can get an online subscription and get full access to every issue. So go to thenation.com slash subscribe. It is an invaluable resource, and it is something that you should support. And remember, 
When you support the nation, you are also supporting the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the O.J. Simpson parole hearing. Look, as expected, O.J. Simpson was granted parole in Nevada after serving nearly nine years of a 33-year sentence at the Lovelock Correctional Center. Barring any infractions over the next three months, he will be released in October. Now, this parole hearing, I'm guessing a lot of you watched it because it was simulcast on all the cable networks and ESPN. And it was nothing pretty. It was neither cinematic nor illustrative. There was none of this. So you go on and stamp your form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time. Because I tell you the truth, I don't give a shit. Yeah, there was none of that. Simpson, in fact, made roundly mocked and altogether clueless statements such as, I've led a conflict-free life, and nobody has ever accused me of pulling a weapon on anybody as if he was never involved in the murder trial of the century or had an acknowledged past as a domestic abuser. Yet this wasn't a parole hearing that had anything to do with the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson or Ronald Goldman, and that's why the decision of the parole board, even if it rankled some folks out there, was not only correct, it was just. Look, Simpson had been in prison for nine years of a 33-year sentence on charges of stealing his own merchandise while someone with him pulled a gun. The person who he robbed, who's a friend of Simpson's, testified at the parole hearing that he would even drive him home from prison. What is still stunning, however, is that original sentence. That's what I have stuck in my craw. 33 years. Simpson received this 33-year sentence at age 61, which is basically a life sentence, 13 years to the day after Simpson received the not guilty verdict for the murders of Brown, Simpson, and Goldman. That number 33 is also a frightening reminder of the reach of the U.S. justice system. It was $33.5 million. That was the wrongful death judgment that was handed to Simpson in California civil court for the 94 murders. It was $33.5 million that O.J. said he had no ability or intention to pay as he left California for Florida, basically thumbing his nose at the decision. Now, while this has been denied by the Nevada courts, this 2008 sentence clearly looks like payback. It looks like what Simpson's 1994 attorney Carl Douglas said in the ESPN documentary about O.J. That was the fifth quarter. They got O.J. back for winning our case. Jeffrey Tubin, who's the CNN legal analyst, uh, and he is no fan of O.J. Simpson in any way, shape, or form, this is what he said about it. He said, That sentence was bogus. It was payback. It is not the way the legal system is supposed to work. End quote. As I said, Tubin, to put it mildly, no fan of O.J. Simpson. And he's also absolutely right that this is not the way the system is supposed to work. And it's maddening to consider the idea that a Nevada judge would be rendering a prison payback for a California civil judgment. Even if you care nothing about O.J. Simpson or you want him to rot behind bars until his dying day, this from a civil liberties perspective is an abomination. In addition, a retired corrections official from Lovelock Prison, 
was quoted in USA Today the morning of the parole hearing saying that O.J. Simpson's prison term was, quote, a cruise ship with barbed wire, saying he's always happy. Look, this is a garbage statement by this corrections official, but it speaks to why we need to be vigilant in our criticisms of this nation's sprawling prison system, especially in a Trump era where Jeff Sessions, if he is indeed still attorney general by the time you hear this, aims to revive and nationalize every discredited tough-on-crime, war-on-drugs, private prison, new Jim Crow provision from the last 40 years. The O.J. Simpson drama has been many things to many people, but its longest-lasting and furthest-reaching effect has been the valorization of our system of highly racialized mass incarceration. When the U.S. justice system is allowed to demonize, it's not only demons who are caught in its web— The parole board decision was a reminder that in the Trump Sessions era, we don't have to be governed by mindless vengeance. I don't care what OJ does next, and I'm not particularly interested in finding out. But I do know that payback sentences should be fought, because it won't be the OJs, with all of their reach, fame, and money, who will pay the price. And now this is usually the time in the show when we do the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. But we're actually going to reorder it a little bit and start with Kaepernick Watch because Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down relates intimately to the Kaepernick Watch this week. First and foremost, what I'm going to be discussing in all of these instances is what we talked about briefly with Amir Loggins, and that is the controversy of Michael Vick saying that Colin Kaepernick would have a job if he only cut his hair. Look, I could give a full-scale denunciation slash lecture slash pontification of everything that was wrong with what Michael Vick said, but I honestly believe that Shannon Sharp said it best. And so I want to play a clip of Shannon Sharp, and it's got music underneath it, and uh, shout out to Mike Nacella over at WPFW for producing this. Bam! Let's play what Shannon Sharp had to say. And what Michael Vick just did was continual, perpetuate a stereotype that blacks that look a certain way, dress a certain way, should be judged a certain way. What does Colin Kaepernick's hair have to do with anything? He need to reform his image from what? Some of the media, and even Michael Vick, has convinced himself that what Colin Kaepernick did by taking a knee was equal to, if not worse, than what Michael Vick went to prison for. Michael, you went to prison. You are a convicted felon. You needed to change your image. Colin Kaepernick took a knee. He took a knee in protest of black and brown unarmed men and women being killed at a disproportionate high rate compared to the percentage in which they represent in America. And the officers that were doing this killing they were going unaccount- they were being held unaccountable for their actions. He took a knee. The very country that Colin Kaepernick took a knee in was founded on protest. We keep talking about he was disrespectful of the flag. We have yet to address the issue what he was trying to bring attention to. Thanks again to Mike Nacella for the production on that over at WPFW 89.3 FM here in Washington, D.C., where I do a show called The Collision with Atan Thomas. Look, Shannon Sharp, I thought, dotted every I and crossed every T. There are two points that I would like to add. Listeners to the Edge of Sports podcast know that I've interviewed Colin Kaepernick, and I went to one of his Know Your Rights camps in Chicago. 
And when I heard what Michael Vick said, I was reminded of something Colin Kaepernick said at that camp to this room of several hundred young people in Chicago. He talked about his hair, and he referred to it as his African hair. And he spoke about people making fun of him because his afro is so big. And he spoke about how he likes it like that because when he looks in the mirror, he feels a deep cultural connection to where he is from, to his African ancestral homeland, to Ghana. And it was a very moving moment. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. So as soon as Vic said that, I was like, oh my God, do not mess with Colin Kaepernick's hair because, I mean, this, this is soul deep for him. The second point that I would just add to what Shannon Sharp said is I want to point out what Colin Kaepernick did in response to what Michael Vick said, uh, which was he posted an entire definition of Stockholm Syndrome. Now, he didn't say Michael Vick's name. He didn't do anything of the sort. I guess this is what we call a subtweet. We're really hip. And this definition of Stockholm Syndrome, for folks who don't know what Stockholm Syndrome is, that's basically when a hostage or a kidnap victim begins to sympathize with their captors and beg for approval from their captors. That's what Stockholm Syndrome is. And I thought this was a very deep thing to say because a lot of people read it as Colin Kaepernick doing a big clapback on Michael Vick, basically saying, you're trying to get approval from uh, basically the white power structure in sports, and this is symbolic of the fact that people from African descent came here in chains, and that as a people, uh, people of African descent have Stockholm Syndrome. But I actually read it in a different way, and as something actually more empathetic to Michael Vick, I truly felt like Colin Kaepernick was also referencing the fact that Michael Vick spent almost 20 months in prison, almost 20 months in Leavenworth. And I think he was speaking also about the psychological effects of that. Like if you're Michael Vick and you got your second chance to play in the NFL and you went on the apology tour with Tony Dungy and you're largely rehabilitated, at least rehabilitated enough that you can appear on Fox Sports and give your opinions about what took place, well... I think Colin Kaepernick was pointing out that maybe Michael Vick was damaged by the experience in Leavenworth and has Stockholm Syndrome from that and is so grateful that he's not in that hole at one of the most notorious prisons in this country. Just my thoughts. I say that without any basis whatsoever. And now a quick word from the second best podcast hosted and sponsored by The Nation magazine, Start Making Sense. Look, this is rapidly becoming one of my favorite podcasts. It's hosted by John Wiener. It is politics without the boring parts. Every week, he speaks to Nation magazine journalists and newsmakers about the issues that you care about. Not the issues that the mainstream media is telling you to care about, but the issues that you actually do care about. The podcast is called Start Making Sense with John Wiener. It is really good. Please check it out, download an episode, subscribe to it over at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now let's go directly to the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award because it connects directly to this entire issue and what we're talking about. The Just Stand Up Award, there were a lot of candidates, but I gotta give it to Chris Long. Chris Long was on the New England Patriots last year, won a Super Bowl title. This year, he is on the Philadelphia Eagles. 
this is what Chris Long did. He put out a series of tweets talking about the Michael Vick issue, and this is what he said. He said things like, the Vick thing is confusing because he says that Kaepernick is unemployed because of performance, but a haircut will help. What am I missing there? Chris Long also said, I had a dirty mullet last year and worked for that company you love. He also said, Vick's redemption opportunity, while deserve it, is way different than Colin Kaepernick's current situation. And then when a Twitter user chided Long for letting, quote, leftists brainwash him, he called this person a moron and he said, I'm just trying to make sense of why one of the best 32 quarterbacks on the planet doesn't have a job. But the best tweet was when a Patriots fan who, as his profile picture, had the five Super Bowl rings that the Patriots won in the Brady-Belichick era, criticized Chris Long for his views on Kaepernick. And this is what Chris Long said. He said, I had a dirty mullet last year and worked for that company you love. You know, the one with the five rings on your background that you'll never touch. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! So, big shout out to Chris Long. And I gotta say, one of the reasons why I'm also mentioning Chris Long, who, as a reminder, was also one of the Patriots who refused to go to the White House to meet with Donald Trump, is because Chris Long is a white athlete. And I'm gonna continue to beat this gong. White athletes need to step up against racism. Not because white people need to be saviors and lead the fight against racism, but because when I speak to black athletes, one of the things they say is that they wish their white teammates would step up. If for no other reason, it would mean less of a burden on them. And the sentiment that they've expressed to me over and over is like, wow, you know, we always talk about a team being a family, but if a member of our family is upset, then you should be upset too. So this is really about the brotherhood of the NFL. It's about, the, frankly, the politics of family and the importance of multiracial struggle against racism. So Chris Long, for modeling that, you get the Just Stand Up Award. I'm sure you will hold it more close to your heart than that Super Bowl ring. And the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award Sit your ass down. is not going to Michael Vick. What it's going to is every sports writer and sportscaster who use the Michael Vick statement as an opportunity to trash Michael Vick. Now, I know there are other people out there, like some of the the Fox sports crowd, not named Shannon Sharp, and some guy for ESPN whose name I can't even recall, it's like Will Kane or something like that, I don't know, uh, was saying about, hey, what's wrong with saying to get a haircut? My goodness. Like, I'm not talking about them, because if you don't realize why they should just sit their ass down by this point, then you probably wouldn't even be listening to this podcast. But my problem is really, truly, with a lot of the journalists who went after Michael Vick on this issue, not all of them, of course. Some of them are brilliant. I thought LZ Granderson's piece was amazing on The Undefeated about hair um, and the politics of hair. But, but it really rankled me for a reason that I thought my friend Etan Thomas articulated really well. He's, this is what Etan Thomas said. He said, Everyone is willing to turn their backs on Michael Vick for what he said, but no one is willing to turn their backs on the NFL for what they did. I thought that was such a deep statement because I saw a lot of columnists, a lot of talking heads who have given the NFL a pass for not signing Colin Kaepernick who are piling on Michael Vick and saying, no, 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 it's about politics. Michael Vick is so ignorant. His hair is nothing, no issue whatsoever. And to me, it's like something Michael Bennett said of the Seahawks when he said that when it comes to justice issues, you're either in or you're out. Or like John Carlos says, you can't be a little bit pregnant. 
And these sports columnists are trying to be a little bit pregnant. They're going after Michael Vick because Michael Vick is an easy target. You know what's much tougher? Go after the NFL. Go after Roger Goodell. And stop trying to be such an access merchant to the National Football League. So that is my Just Sit Your Ass Down award. And now before we wrap up the show, I just want to share some professional news with everybody and give a big thank you. Look, this year, for the first time in my sports writing life, I wrote something that was chosen for the compilation, The Best American Sports Writing. And this year, it's edited by Howard Bryant, who's been a guest on this show. So I really want to thank Howard Bryant for choosing something I wrote. And as someone who's been reading this book for years, I mean, I can't even tell you what an honor this is for me to be included. But more than just being grateful that it was chosen and thankful that Howard Bryant gave it consideration, I'm very excited and encouraged by the piece that they chose. It's about sports, Muhammad Ali, and Andrew Cuomo's criminalization of Palestinian solidarity activists. Given the current political climate and the fact that there is a horrific bill up right now in the Senate that 45 U.S. senators have signed on to that mandates fines and or up to 20 years in prison for people who advocate for economic boycotts of Israeli settlements, this bill, by the way, being fought ferociously by the ACLU, I'm just very proud that a piece like this will be included in such a mainstream publication. And hey, if it results in fines or prison, let me just paraphrase Colin Kaepernick, who said, that only means it was worth doing. I just want to thank our guests this week. Thank you so much, Amir Loggins. Thank you so much, Lindsey Gibbs. Thank you to my co-producers, Daniel Baker and Dave Tigaboo, and thank you to The Nation Magazine. If you like this podcast, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, give it a rating, give a comment. All of that means a great deal. Go to edgeofsportspodcast.com. If you want to listen to back episodes, please, please do so. And lastly, I just want to thank everybody out there who has supported this show. Uh, We try to do it differently here, and I know you appreciate it. And I always love hearing from you. So you can always email me, Dave Zirin, at edgeofsports at gmail.com or call our hotline at 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. For Dan and David, I'm Dave Zirin. Stay frosty, everybody, especially on these hot summer days. We are out of here. Peace.